The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture is from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 5. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her inequity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all the flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the word of the God. Excuse me, this is the word of the Lord. (laughs) Thanks be to God. Thanks, Morgan. Well, welcome again. So glad you're with us. And, uh, you know, we've been going through a series for um, this Advent season, started early, as I mentioned, just like the rest of the world wanted to start Christmas early, we wanted to also, so we started our series uh, a number of weeks ago in Isaiah. It's an Old Testament book, if you're unfamiliar with it, it's a long book. There there are books called the Major Prophets and Minor Prophets in the Old Testament, Uh, not because they're of importance, but because of length, and the book of Isaiah is a huge prophetic book. And uh, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, maybe at a Christmas time uh, in past, you probably heard a lot of the readings from Isaiah, may not have identified with it or knew what it was. But uh, we're taking the passages of Isaiah that really cry out, there is hope coming. Uh, there is, there's, there's one to come. Isaiah, probably more than just about any other prophetic book, leads the way in saying, there is someone coming. Someone coming that's going to take care of all of this disaster that we see. Uh, And we actually took our title, um, A Weary World Rejoices. Uh, You probably captured that from the song, um, O Holy Night. And uh, it it, it actually, that line begins with a thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices. Uh, and so one of the things that we want to talk about is the thrill of hope. You know, I was, I've been doing this a lot lately, and maybe you've heard me or heard this pattern uh, of me doing this in my sermons or in, in some form. But I've really um, dug into where these songs come from because been, I've been super curious. Uh, this one in particular is fascinating. Uh, in 1847, uh, a, a French man was commissioned uh, who was not necessarily a pastor or anything. In fact, he was a commissioner of the wines in a small town. And it said he was probably known for, more for his poetry and his wine than he was even his church attendance at some point. But was commissioned to write a poem or write some sort of a song uh, to be used because he was a, a really you know, good poet in that city uh, to write a song for mass. And so years ago, he wrote... A Holy Night with the help of a few others and it came in, but it got lost somewhere along the way. And then in 1906, 
Years and years later, on a Christmas Eve, a man named Reginald Fessenden, Fessenden, I think that's it, Fessenden, who was a 33-year-old university professor and former chief chemist for Thomas Edison. He did something that no one thought possible. He, he, he created a new type of generator and spoke into what was a microphone. And at that time, that was unheard of. Usually it was used for just information only. Nothing like this happened. But this man, Reginald, decided... On that Christmas Eve, he was gonna do something different. He took the microphone and he began to speak into it and this is what he spoke. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus and you see where he's going. He starts reading from Luke. And it said in, in, in history that it was crazy because people were shocked. They were used, people on ships or people in warehouses or people in just remote places were used to the radio waves only being used for specific transfer of goods and those kind of, it was only, it was that kind of thing. Some sort of code, it was not used for this. And so it talked about how people were probably just slack-jawed and, 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 and some of the, even the reporting came back that newspapers, uh, uh, owners, people uh, were coming back just freaking out that they were hearing this. And all of a sudden, not only did he read that, but Reginald took up his violin and began to play O Holy Night. And this was the first, first time a song was played like this over the radio, broadcast out like that. And so people all scattered all over, even on boats in the middle of the ocean. People everywhere were hearing Luke and O Holy Night played. A thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices. Can you imagine being that person? I mean, we could all kind of uh, remember moments, maybe, some of us, when we didn't have a cell phone or we didn't have, you know, TV or those kind of things like came in. This was something so profound that where people were used to information, transaction, live life practically, in comes this news and a song that lifts them, it said. It said that people were slack-jawed. People didn't even know what to do with it, but there was just this resounding warmth from it. When we've been reading Isaiah, I want you to know what's happening in Isaiah is the people are in exile. They're actually looking around. They've been, they've been taken over by a, a nation called Assyria, a very difficult, ugly, nasty nation that decided to destroy them. And the passage we're reading here is in between that first exile of Assyria and the second one, Babylon, which would happen in 586 BC. So not only once, but again, this is actually looking forward to another exile and how are they gonna be comforted? How are they gonna be encouraged in the midst of it? See, can you imagine hearing that voice, needing a voice, middle of the ocean, in it, in it, as it seems, almost like what we've experienced and hearing the voice of Advent, I think we need to remember, what is Advent really? People have had, had Christmases long before that, but it wasn't until the message came into them, came in and broke into their places of work, into their places of living, into their places of, of feeling, of, of thinking, that it really spelled out. It was the message of the Advent where God himself comes in flesh to meet our pain. That is what the Advent is. Is where his love 
meets our pain in flesh. That's Christmas. That's the message coming. There's not, every week we're, we're unpacking what Isaiah is saying. We're un, undoing that. But there's not, nothing more we can add to that. That is the message. That is the power of it itself. And for many of us, maybe that message we've heard a number of times. Maybe now we're used to the radio message, right? But what we need to pray and ask is that God would afresh remind us that what God is doing is he's meeting every moment of our pain with his love. Every place, every position of it. And he does it in this, these short five verses in Isaiah 40 in a really profound way. Because the first 39 chapters really are this difficult, drawn out, this is what it's like to be in exile. This is the judgment you're receiving. You've been unfaithful to me. This is the responsibility you have after falling into sin. It's, it's all the places where you look around and you feel that despair. And then 40 happens and it begins this way. Comfort, comfort my people. And anytime the Bible starts with something twice, you always, it's, it's like anytime uh, you heard your, your mom or your dad say your name twice, you knew you better look up. Comfort, comfort. What is God doing? There's a couple things we're gonna look at here briefly. One is the, the message of comfort comes. What is, what is comfort? What, is, what does it mean that God brings comfort? And what does it mean that God himself comes? So he not only speaks comfort, but he comes himself to bring it. So those two things we're gonna look in this passage in these five sweet, short verses. I was eating at uh, Whole Foods. I met one of you here at Whole Foods the other day. And it was interesting walking into, um, you know, with uh, masked up and everything's plexiglass and all those things. And it was a morning and I, and I walked in to get, uh, I was thinking the buffet bar. I mean, if you've been to Whole Foods, one of the best places to just grab food and go. Well, they had uh, signs up, you know. I said, they've changed it now, so you, you can't just grab your own food. And so I walk in, and I notice the signs for different things, you know. There's certain types of food. And then all of a sudden, one sign just said comfort. Comfort. I was like, man, I want some of that, you know. And ironically, the, there was, the bin was empty. Um, but I thought, I thought, what, okay, that is interesting. What, why comfort? Like, it doesn't explain it. It doesn't say comfort food. It's obviously food that's supposed to be there, but comfort. What, what, where does that come from? Uh, you know, it made me think, how do we attach comfort to things like that? Comfort food. And, and actually, um, some time ago, it was in the uh, late 90s, the phrase comfort food was added to the Oxford English Dictionary. And it was used to uh, talk about specific foods that drive home. Now, they were trying to say foods from a specific region, but I read an Atlantic article that um, drew it out further, I love, and this is what it said. Why comfort food comforts? The intersection of taste, nostalgia, and loneliness. And here's just a, a clip of what it said. It said, certain foods promise solace as much as they do fuel. But what's murkier is whether comfort food can actually deliver on that promise. Is that the feeling of a soul being soothed or just the onset of mac and cheese induced food coma? And what I really appreciated what this article went to, and it's not hard for us to figure out what comfort food does for us because we all go to it, is that it has a specific set of attachment. 
it actually continues from whatever we're tasting, that tangible thing to attachment, actually even further to relationship. Because I think whatever that word comfort is over, whatever you would put in the bin, food or anything else, I think we could put anything in there. Because what we're, what we're really doing when we go for something that provides us comfort, we're looking for something to meet the deepest part of attachment to us, to help us feel grounded again, known, not, not just quieted, but understood. We're wanting something to meet us. And so we feel something internally, our hearts longing to be comforted, to be known, to be loved. And to meet that, oftentimes we'll reach out. It could be drink, it could be food, it could be work, it could be anything else to comfort that, to quiet our soul in order to meet that. But it really is what we want, a relationship. We're wanting something to get to the heart of where we are, to come back to a place where we're not feeling the pressure so much. We look for anything to give us relationship. And what God does here with a severe intensity, and this is why it's repeated twice, comes to say there's a deep, as, as many you know, as you unpack it, the reason why it's said twice is we're supposed to understand this is a deep emotional intensity from God to us. Emotional intensity. Almost so powerful, it's, it, it, should, it should move us back. He says, comfort, comfort. In fact, the actual words comfort mean this. And tell me if this isn't providential God's hand in Isaiah. It means to cause to breathe again. Comfort means to cause to breathe again. You can almost feel it with your mask on, I'm sure, or being at home, just, you know, that I'm, I'm isolating myself. We've really understood in our climate the, the difficulty to, to, to just breathe. Just be in a a space where we can breathe. And even more so, isn't that what we want in comfort to give us breath again? We feel the suffocation of life, our anxiety, even before this pandemic. And even after it leaves, we will feel that. We will still have it. What can reach in and cause us to breathe again? Isn't it in those moments when you're met by someone that reaches in and sees you at your lowest depths, at the point where where you are just at your wit's end. You could be crying, you could be scattered, you could be shaking, it could be a panic attack, and yet when someone meets you in that lowest of lowest places, whether you're crying and you have a hard time catching your breath, whether you're in a place where you feel so suffocated, if someone really comes to you with the comfort, it does what? It lifts it causes you to almost breathe again. It causes you to come up for air. This is where God meets us with an intensity that we really know. So much so that the verb, and I know we talk about this sometimes, and it sounds like we're just, you know, pastors talk about these things like being nerdy. The Greek means the Hebrew. We don't, we're actually not doing that uh, to just say, hey, hey, think about how smart I am. Uh, It's actually because just like anybody's words, in an email, in a text, or something like that, when you read them, sometimes you can miss the tone. You can miss the depth. The, the actual language here, the verb here, the comfort, comfort my people, actually comes with a continuous tone. It means a constant comfort, not just a, hey, comfort, comfort. 
It's a continual tone. In fact, when it moves on to say, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, it means a, a persuasive. It's not just a, an element of, oh, I want to talk real sweet to you. We just got a, a, a dog, like everyone decided to do as a bad decision in the pandemic, right? Uh, how can we make our house more crazy? Um, one of the things I love, I've had dogs all my life, but one of the things I love about uh, my dog that reminds me is when the dog does something, or grab, it's a puppy, you know, it's, it chew, we have marks of the puppy everywhere, uh, whether restroom marks, bite mark, everything is everywhere now. But one of the things, if I'm, if I'm really wanting to, do, say the dog is doing this, it gets in a habit of grabbing one of the toys or something it shouldn't, a paper towel, trash, I mean, all the food, you know, it just, it'll run away. And one of the things I notice, if I just, if I try and like run it down, I, I, I lose. Like there's no way I can catch, catch him. But if I really put myself in a position of persuasive tone, there's this like easing up, the, the haunches go up and the dog kind of sits and waits for me to come close. That is actually what is happening in this tone. It's, it's a tone of persuasive speech to say, I want you to, I'm gonna draw you in. I'm gonna show you so much overwhelming comfort that it's going to do nothing, but everything that you've gripped onto to give you comfort, you can do nothing but come to me out of the persuasive love that you are hearing out of my voice. And that is where God is bringing it. He is bringing this ex deep expression of kindness. So speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Because I, I think when we think of, of, of Jesus and God's work, we can often think of him doing something that meets our sin, like when we come to a confession time, we're like, we have a sin, God's grace meets it, and it like cancels out. But what this is actually saying, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins, it means the double overwhelming grace. It, it means that whatever you think, and we sang this song, mercy, his mercy is more, that is a reality of what this is saying. Beautifully chosen by Parker to put, set us up to think, his mercy, stronger than darkness, knew every, all the ways that we think his, the sin, okay, his grace may mean it. He actually is saying it's more. It so overwhelms it. I, I remember, uh, this happened a lot. I, I used to love having these meetings when I was a, a campus minister across the street of Vanderbilt. And oftentimes would meet with students that came from a background that, was, uh, you know, Christian or not. But usually, if they came from a Christian background, they were coming into a, an atmosphere. It wasn't just they were learning, you know, about other people and relationships. They were making sense of their own faith. They were like, okay, this is what I did growing up, but how do I own this? Like, what is this for me? What, is, what does it really mean to be a Christian and be mine? I remember meeting with a guy from British Virgin Islands. Amazing guy. Uh, grew up in a Christian home, came here and had had a lot of answers. And I remember us sitting and talking <clears throat> and I decided, I said, hey, you know what? Let's, let's actually sit and read through the gospel of Mark together. Like, I don't know, when was the last time you did something like that? So we read through the gospel of Mark and the thing that resoundedly came back and he said this a number of times, one in particular, the very first time he said, 
And, and we had it, somehow I had Mark in like this, its own little pamphlet and he put it down on the table and he said, everything I thought I knew about Jesus is so different. It, it, who he is, and he, he kind of patted it on the table. This, what he's telling me about himself and about me is so different than anything I, I put on him. That he doesn't just meet my sin, he overwhelms it. His grace is more, it's double, it goes over that. He was so overwhelmed with the sense of this is the real message, this is the message that's gone out. He's heard it before on the radio waves, but it wasn't until he allowed himself to hear the message in his own category that it blew the categories out. Till he said, my sin, he actually meets it. Wait, it's mercy, his mercy is more? That Christianity became more real to him. Hey, one of the things that we talk a lot about when kids interview, and people ask me this all the time, like, what do you, is there something you're looking for? Like, do they need to have the right answers? Uh, No, we're not looking for answers. What we're asking and what Jordan does such a beautiful job of and what we're we're looking for in that moment is, is there a connection of that Jesus is real to me? That he really knows me. And I don't want to ask that of our kids. I want to ask that of us adults. How real is that? Tim Keller said it this way beautifully. He said, he says a lot of things wonderfully. Great pastor from New York City, if you're unfamiliar with you. He said, Christmas doesn't allow us to be neutral. Like if Christmas, if Jesus really came and what we see in the gospels of him growing up, his life, death, resurrection, then Christmas doesn't let us be neutral about anything. We don't get the option to say, we can do this however we want. God doesn't really care. It's not just some background noise. It's the reality of coming in, something we really have to take up and say, God really really cares and really wants to speak to us. I've never heard this before. I've always thought this. There's always been these stories in the background. There's always been these songs. If I've always gone to church all my life. Maybe I've prayed. Maybe I've gone to a, a Christian camp. Maybe I've been a part of a Bible study. Even as a grown adult. But Jesus is real. He really comes. And he comes to bring comfort. Verse three says it this way. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. The comfort comes to us. There's a herald here. There's a comfort of peace, the rescuer. Again, I'm quoting this every week just just so you know. I'm trying to look in the Jesus Storybook Bible for two reasons. One is because I love it. Uh, Two is because we, right now, our children's programming is more on this level and engaging in videos and those kind of things. And I want you to know that I'm reading what you're reading. And we've put out, Jordan and and her team have put out a great uh, Advent uh, um, calendar for us to follow. And I want you adults, kids, keep your parents accountable, but adults, every adult, if you get your hands on an Advent reading, read it. 
The Jesus Storybook Bible says this way from this passage. It says, make your hearts ready for him. Yes, get ready because your king is coming back for you. And what it's quoting from is Luke chapter three when, when uh, John the Baptist was on the scene. And John the Baptist was this crazy wild-haired guy. And people were like, who is this weirdo that wears camel hair and eats bugs? Literally ate bugs. And he dipped them in honey because it would help the taste. And he was out in the wilderness and he proclaimed the word of God and he was calling it out. And in chapter three, it says John the Baptist is preparing the way for God. And as people are hearing, there's people on either side. There's some that are hearing and repenting and going, this guy is, is proclaiming something. And these actual verses three through five are quoted as written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. That there's a herald. Anytime a king is coming, someone's gonna go in front of him and proclaim it. Because it's not enough to hear the preview, you gotta see the real thing. Uh, I don't know if you've seen on, um, it, was, it was on Instagram, it's been all over the place. There's a seven-year-old boy who had a rare uh, form of brain cancer. And uh, for a gift, he's a huge fan of superheroes. And for a gift, he opened up one of his, his gifts as a toy, and it was Aquaman. And he just was so, that's his, his I mean, if you, you don't have to know anything about, it's just a guy who can manipulate water, basically, and be in the ocean. But he loved, that's his favorite character. All of a sudden, he gets a call and his mom puts it on FaceTime and it's Jason Moma. Now, if you know who that is, Jason Moma is the actor who plays Aquaman currently. And this seven-year-old boy, I scream, I mean, it makes me teary thinking about the video. He screams out, he's like, there he is. I mean, he's like holding, he's like almost crushing this Aquaman action figure. And he goes, there he is, and, and all of a sudden, and this is what Jason Moma says to this boy. He says, beautiful boy, I just wanted to call you and see how you're doing. My friends have told me all about you and how much you enjoy Aquaman. And, he, and, and you know what this boy, and sweet, he goes, can we like ride dolphins together? And they start just talking. And who knows how long they talk, but about playing in the ocean Jason Moment, is, I mean, you could see his face and just the way he spoke to him in that moment. What if the boy gets the call, though, and he just said, who's that guy? I, I, got, the, I got the action figure right here. I don't need a call. Be something kind of off with that, wouldn't there? It'd be interesting if he, he sat there and he just said, oh, I don't, I don't need to be on FaceTime. I, I can play with this little guy anytime I want. What, what was it? The reality. This symbol became flesh and it, radic it radically transformed his world he would look at that action figure never the same way again because he'd know it's a symbol it's a sign pointing the reality that the real Aquaman is on, on my phone talking to me knows my name I get to ride dolphins with him isn't that what God does? The reality of what Advent is, is your pain, everything that you feel, everything that you know is true. 
And what separates Christianity from anything else is that God himself says, I'm going to meet your pain, not by sending some sign, but to prepare the way for the real thing coming. That's why it says, every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and in the rough places a plain. It's kind of a strange thing. Like you just almost see an earthquake and everything just kind of shifting. But what's happening here is, is a picture of complete leveling of the ground. And the reason is, is because this isn't just any king. It's, it's not just smoothing the floor so people can walk in and out. It's a leveling of the earth so the king of the earth can actually walk unhindered with no obstacle. It's like when we had the debate here, uh, we've had it here twice now, a few months ago. Every protocol, and you, maybe some of you got swept up in it, some of you Belmont students. Some Belmont students were dislocated, sent all the way out to, to hotels around the city. Everything was, why? All this protocol, restaurants, angles of where windows were. I mean, streets shut down. Why all that hubbub? Because they had to make the way. Everything was prepared for those to come. That's what this was saying. And it's, here's what's fascinating. To us, it sounds like, oh, just ground being level. To them, what they're hearing is Exodus language. Another hitch into redemption. Exodus for the Jewish people, not just the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, but some of you may be unfamiliar with the Bible. You remember, God brought his people out of slavery, out of Egypt, through the Red, through the Red Sea, and brought them into the promised land eventually. But that whole event bringing them out of slavery is the pinnacle moment of redemption for a Jewish person. And what this language is actually drawing from, the, the, the Hebrew language is saying, there is an exodus coming, another exodus that would ring in their minds of, are you kidding? Redemption is happening again, but the reversal is this. Instead of them being brought out of exile where they are, it's saying, make the straight in the desert a highway for God because he's coming to them. The exodus is in reverse. Instead of being brought out of slavery, out of Egypt, God would actually go into it to take on a form of a servant, to take it all on himself. That's why this table is what it is. This table is the ultimate representation of Advent for us, where pain meets love. Where the king himself brings comfort that we get to taste because every sin that we have, every part of us that keeps us from him, we get to taste and see that it has been dealt with. His mercy is more. And that he comes to us. It also is a reminder that God didn't stay distant from us. It'd be one thing if he said, just read the Bible. But it's another thing that he comes in flesh he comes to see you face to face. And as unnerving as that could be in an Advent season to think about, the reality of what Christmas means is that God comes in flesh to us. We can't stay neutral. You can't come to this table, you can't taste it 
and feel the same because it's not about how you muster yourself up. It's how you leave this table knowing that there's one who laid his life down for you. This is why the end of this says, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God has not hidden himself. He has made himself known for you and I to taste and see that he is good.